morning. Good to see all of you here today. Special good morning to those of you over in the communion service. Glad that you are joining us over in Center Court East. We are continuing in our sermon series, uh, God Calling. We are in the book of Exodus. We're going to be in chapter 32, if you want to go ahead and turn there. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Usher's coming down the aisle. They'll be glad to give you one. And if you do not currently own a Bible, please accept that as our gift to you. So in this uh, series about God's call, we've been exploring uh, the notion that God has a call for each and every one of us. And the whole idea of call revolves around relationship. That's what God is calling us into, is a relationship with Him. And we've been looking at this notion of call through the lens of a fellow by the name of Moses and the nation that he led, the nation of Israel. God had a call upon Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, where they had been in slavery for 400 years. And his call upon the nation of Israel was not only to come out of Egypt and into freedom, but also to become his unique chosen people, to be an instrument through which he would accomplish his purposes in the world. God calls us into relationship with him, not only for the sake of relationship, which is a wonderful blessing in and of itself, but also to come alongside and to join him in the work that he's doing in the world. Now, today we want to consider a particular aspect of the call that came to Moses and the Israelites, and that was their call to faithfulness, the call that God placed upon them to be exclusively devoted to Yahweh. Even though every other culture and people group in the world was polytheistic, worshiping multiple gods, including Egypt, where they had been for 400 years, God says, no more of that. From this time forward, I want you to worship me and only me. Way back in Exodus 6, God proclaimed, uh, I will be your God, you shall be my people. No longer will you worship other gods, you will acknowledge me as the only true God. And for a while, Israel was willing to abide by that call, actually uh, happy to live according to that call, because after all, God had done so many incredible things on their behalf, performing any number of miracles to ultimately free them from slavery. After they're out of slavery, parting the Red Sea so that they could escape the, escape the Egyptian army, and then once they were out in the wilderness, provide for their every single need. And so as things are rocking along at the start, well, sure, no problem, God. We are devoted to you and to you alone. And then one day, Moses announces that he's going to go to the top of a mountain. They had made their way to Mount Sinai in the wilderness And Moses says, I'm going to the top of the mountain to confer with God one-on-one where I will receive further instruction about what we are to do and where it is that we are to go. 
40 days later, no one has heard a peep out of Moses. And the Israelites start to get scared. As a matter of fact, they downright panic. Moses has been the only leader they have known in their short history as a nation. They've put all their faith and trust and hope in him and in his leadership. And now seemingly he's gone. No one's seen him. So they fall into panic and things go south pretty quickly. Look with me at the beginning of chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Now, Aaron was the brother of Moses. And before Moses went on top of the mountain, he put Aaron in charge while he was gone. They gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down. Because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And then skipping down to verse 21 Moses confronts his brother. He said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, Whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. What a mess. Moses is gone for just over a month, and these people have fallen into horrendous sin. No two ways about it. I mean, they are breaking a fundamental commandment, a fundamental covenant that they had made to God, that they would worship Him and worship Him alone. Things are going from bad to worse quickly. And while on the one hand, their behavior is completely inexcusable, on the other hand, it's really not difficult to understand why they did what they did. 
You see, for 400 years, they've been under the thumb of the Egyptians, a polytheistic people. That has been the only culture that they have known and understood for 400 years, worshiping multiple gods. It's only been a matter of months that they have been in allegiance to the one God, Yahweh. And so when things got difficult, when push came to shove and they're feeling lost and alone, unsure about the future, they quite naturally revert to the old ways. You could say that they went back to Egypt, not geographically, but certainly spiritually. They went back to the ways of Egypt. It was proving uh, much more difficult to get Egypt out of the Israelites than it was to get the Israelites out of Egypt. They were looking for what was comfortable and looking for what was familiar. Now, from our vantage point, their behavior seems uh, ridiculous. I mean, look at all that God has done for you, how he delivered you, set you free from this horrible oppression that you've endured for four centuries, the miracles that he performed on your behalf, the way that he has provided for you here in the desert. Why on earth would you go and do something so foolish? It's easy for us to label them as just a ridiculous group of people. But I would caution us not so fast. Because the fact of the matter is, you and I are prone to do the very same thing. When life gets tough, when stress comes, the pressure mounts, the future is uncertain, we too, in our own way, are liable to go back to the old ways, to seek out idols of our own. Some 1,500 years later, the Apostle Paul, very much aware of this tendency we have wrote a letter to the church at Corinth, his first letter to the church at Corinth. And in the course of that letter, he reflected upon this idolatry of the Israelites, told the story of the golden calf. And then in chapter 10, he said these words, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So, you think you are standing firm? Be careful that you don't fall. Paul was very, very much aware of just how fragile our fundamental devotion and commitment to God can be and how we are just as likely as the Israelites when things are difficult to go back, to go in reverse, to go to the old ways, the old, familiar, comfortable ways. Now, granted, I have never witnessed a modern-day Christ follower fashioning a golden calf and falling down. But nevertheless, we have our own, plenty of our own culturally appropriate idols that are every bit as appealing to us as the calf was to the Israelites. So what what is an idol anyway? Well, simply put, an idol is anything, anything at all that competes 
with God for our affections and our loyalty. Anything that is going to get in the way of us having an exclusive relationship with God, anything that's going to water that down and cause us to turn and pay attention to other sources of strength and comfort and hope and even worship, that qualifies as an idol. And here's the thing about idols. They are sneaky, slippery. They can work their way into our lives sometimes without our being consciously aware of it. Sometimes we just boldly go right after it. Other times they just sort of work their way in. I noticed in this particular passage that we read that when the Israelites began to worship the golden calf, they didn't abandon Yahweh. It wasn't as though they said, we're done with Yahweh, and now we are exclusive to the calf. That wasn't how it worked at all. No, they wanted a both-and situation. In verse 5, right after they have made the calf, Aaron says, now let's have a festival to the Lord. They were hedging their bets. They weren't quite willing to give up on God, who had done some pretty spectacular things, but since the future's looking a little uncertain, a little shaky, let's just make sure we've got something else going on over here as a backup, if you will. And we do the very same thing. I don't know that I have ever met a believer, a Christ follower, who completely abandoned God in order to follow an idol. No, our tendency is to do like the Israelites, and we want to have both. I mean, we want to keep God. Uh, He is God after all, so it's good to have Him on our side. But, wow, you know, there are just those times when, when life's difficult, when life's tough, and things aren't going my way, and it, it's, it's kind of nice to have these other gods around. Now, whether we're willing to identify them as gods or idols or not, that's what they are. Anything that we're putting our hope and our trust in, anything that is taking our affection and our loyalty is competing with God, and we have lost our exclusive devotion to Him. And idols come in all shapes and sizes, all kinds of formats. They present themselves to us in any number of different ways. But regardless of how they come to us, there are at least three things that every one of these idols has in common. Three things that all idols have in common. Giving credit where credit is due, uh, Nancy Ortberg, one of my favorite writers, opened my eyes to, to two of these things. And the first of those is our tendency to go back over and over and over. Just like the Israelites did. When things got tough, they went back to what was familiar. And when the pressure is on in our life, when we're hurt, when we're fearful, when we're stressed, there are things that we go back to over and over and over. As a matter of fact, that's a pretty good litmus test for beginning to discover 
what our idols might be. Where do we go when life gets hard? What is our go-to place of comfort and strength? Familiarity. Don't kid yourself. We've all got them. Not a one of us are exempt. Today, as we move through these characteristics, I, I want you to be thinking. I want you to be praying, asking God, would you reveal to me what my go-to idols are? Because when life gets tough, we've all got them. I certainly do. When I feel stressed or when I feel angry or when I feel hurt or alone, yeah, baby. Comfort. Comfort. Now, you laugh, but that's okay because I know you're laughing at yourself just as much as you're laughing at me. All of us have our idols. Maybe brownies, ice cream, pizza don't work for you, but um, what about that glass or three of wine that you must have at the end of the day? Must have. Nerves can't be settled. A sense of peace can't come unless the wine is partaken. Now, I don't have a problem with wine or alcohol per se, and don't go running out of here saying, Pastor Dan told me, no, I didn't. No, that's fine. But what isn't fine is when it has become an object of worship, when it becomes the thing that we cannot do without, and when it becomes the substitute for the living God. Others of us, it's not so much a matter of what we eat or what we drink, it's our idols really are centered more around particular behaviors. For some of us, a portable idol, expensive portable idol. So many of us have them. So many of us are bowed down to them. <laughs> I'm inclined to think it's an idol. So many of us don't really believe that we're liked, much less loved, unless this idol tells us that we are. For others of us, this right here. I'll turn him right side up in case you didn't get the hint. When the stress is on, when times are tough, this is the answer. The more of these that I have, the better life is. But the fewer. And our happiness, our sense of well-being, our sense of wholeness as a human being rises and falls with our bank account, with the stock market. It all centers around this, the acquisition of this. And we will work ourselves to death to please this idol, to get more of this idol. We will neglect our families just to have a few more of these. Now, some might say that we preachers are a broken record when it comes to one particular idol, but I say uh, we would be derelict 
in our duties, if we didn't mention it, I'm talking about pornography. It is the epidemic that no one wants to talk about. It's the silent killer that is ravaging our culture. And the fact that pornography brings in more revenue than all sporting revenues combined tells me that people are going back over and over and over. They're finding some comfort, some something there that they don't believe or don't think that God can provide for them. Maybe I have not mentioned your particular idol. But I'd be willing to bet I've come close. Do you know what yours is? Do not kid yourself. You've got them. We all do. What is it that you find yourself going back to with far too much regularity and abandoning your exclusive relationship with God? A second characteristic that these idols have is that they elicit from us an amazing ability to rationalize and justify their existence. I mean, can you believe what Aaron said to his brother when confronted? I took the gold, threw it in there, and poof, cow. It's notable to me that Moses did not dignify his answer with a response. It was as though he just fixed him with a level gaze and walked away. Seriously? We are masters at self-justification. And we can rationalize most any idol in our lives as long as it's meeting a particular need. I mean, when it comes to those brownies and ice cream, I've got a classic. I deserve it. I've had a bad day. I've been good. It's my turn. Whoever deserved a brownie? I mean, really. When it comes to something like wine or alcohol, it's not so much a matter of entitlement as it is need. And that's frightening. I don't just deserve this. I have to have it. The rationalization for this, everybody's got one. It's just the way our culture's going. How can you keep in touch? How can you really be a part of things if you don't have one of these? And besides, I'm I'm not really sure that God likes me, much less loves me. I I need to hear it from a person. Oh, Pastor Dan, you know, you, you preachers, you just don't understand. You don't live in the real world. You know, you never know what the economy's gonna do. And I've got weddings to pay for and College tuition to pay for. Hey, that's where I'm living too. But you see, I'm the sole breadwinner. 
and I've got to bring it home. And if that means I've got to sacrifice time with my family, then so be it. But got to have this. Sat across from a man in a counseling appointment who told me why he chose pornography. He said, my spouse is not interested in a sexual relationship. We haven't had sexual relations in over five years. What am I supposed to do? At least I'm not having an affair. My goodness, we can talk ourselves into anything and justify most anything. And you know why we do that? Because we don't trust God. We don't. We don't believe that when push comes to shove and the pressure is on and times are tough, that he's going to come through. So we go to immediate gratification. We get the quick fix. Because this trusting God business requires waiting sometimes. Sometimes God has the nerve to ask us to operate according to his calendar. Not interested. These gods over here, they deliver. Now, I'm not going to boot you out, but I'm going to keep these too. That's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. Rationalizing and justifying because the third thing that all idols have in common, there's always a price to pay. Always a price to pay. And the most expensive price is the fact that eventually the idol becomes the master. Well, it may start out where you think you're in control and you're just going to this idol when you deem it's necessary or appropriate, but given enough time, in every single instance, the roles are reversed and the idol becomes the master. You go to the brownies or the drink or the phone or the money or the pornography, you fill in the blank, you go when it says to go. You jump when it says to jump. You may deceive yourself into thinking, oh, I could quit anytime I wanted to. No, you can't. It is a taskmaster that will not let up. There's a price to pay. I've shared with you before that um, back in my 20s, there was a particular idol that was prominent in my life, though I was not willing to acknowledge it. I wanted to cloak it and dress it up and make it look as good as it could. But basically, it was this need that I had to be in a, in a relationship. And I wasn't willing to wait on God to let Him bring the right person into my life. No, I, I needed to take matters into my own hands. And, and so... I'm dating just as fast as I can date because there's some sort of inner compulsion there, an emptiness, a hurt, a pain that in my mind, I'm convinced it's only when I find that right person that that's going to settle down and feel better. But all the while, 
God is patiently, graciously saying to me, don't do that. Trust me. Let me bring the right person. Friends around me reminding me, but no. I had become captive to the idol. And before you know it, I found myself in a marriage that I had no business entering into, neither one of us. It was a foolish, unwise decision that brought about nothing but pain and misery for both of us. And it ultimately wound up in a divorce, something that had not been in my life plan. I tell young single people all the time, the only thing worse than being unhappy single is unhappy married. You can trust God. Take it from me. I can tell you from my own personal experience and I can tell you on the basis of the authority of the word of God, there will always be a price to pay. Don't kid yourself. So what do we do? What do we do? How are we delivered from these idols, these masters that we have attached ourselves to? Well, the answer is found in verses 30 and 31. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The answer to our problem is found in that word atonement. That's a good biblical word for you to know, atonement. It refers to the bringing together of two estranged parties through the paying of a price at one mint. Several years ago, a young man backed into my teenage daughter's car, thereby creating estrangement between himself and me. When he was able then to pay the price to bring about the repairs he was atoned for and our relationship was reestablished. The Israelites had estranged themselves from God by their sin and a price had to be paid and Moses understood that. And in an act of incredible graciousness and nobility, he went and offered himself to God. Blot me out on their behalf. But God doesn't take him up on his offer. Later on, if you read on, you'll see that the Israelites were punished for their sin. But why didn't he take up Moses on his offer? Because Moses didn't have what it took to pay the price. He didn't have sufficient payment. Because Moses was a sinner just like they were. Sin was the problem. Sinners can't deal with sin. This was a problem so big that only God himself could solve it. And thanks be to God, he did. 
Because 1,500 years later, God came to earth in the form of a man, Jesus. And Jesus looked at each and every one of us and understood our plight, that we were held captive to sin and we could do nothing about it. We had no way to deal with our sin. But he graciously stepped up and took our place. He paid the price to bring us back together with God. And I don't think you can really say it any more beautifully than the Apostle Paul did in his letter to the Colossians. He writes, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The answer to the idolatry in our lives is the cross. Because you can take any idol that you have in your life, I don't care what it is, from your wildest imagination, and if you place it in comparison to the cross, which represents the overwhelming love of God for those of us who are not worthy, the idol loses every time. Because the cross has triumphed over the sin of humanity and it has triumphed over our foolishness by running after idols. And it is only as we gaze upon the cross that then we are able to see these are worthless. These lead to death. These will do me no good, but the cross leads me to life. So that's what we're going to do today. In just a moment, we're, we're going to pray. And during this time of prayer, it's going to be an opportunity for you to take whatever idols are in your life and hold them up next to the cross and be reminded of the goodness of God, the love of God, and how superior it is to anything this world would offer as I thought about this prayer time, the image that came to my mind was that of um, loosening the roots. Loosening the roots of something that needs to be pulled out of the ground. Idols are, they're tough. They don't just leave by themselves. No, they, they've got to be removed. This prayer time is going to be an opportunity for God to loosen those roots as you commit once again to following Him. But as we move through the week... I want to encourage you to keep working at it, to do what is necessary to pull it out by the roots. And one of the best ways we can do that is through accountability. Go to someone this week, someone you trust, and say to them, God showed me this. I'm going to work on it. Would you hold me accountable as I pray and work on these things? God wants the very best for us. The only question is, do we want it from Him? It's right there for the asking. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess to You our foolishness that far too often we have run after things that will never serve us 
that will never love us. They will only capture and imprison and bring pain. Forgive us, O God. We pray, Lord, as we place these idols in your presence, you would give us a new vision of the cross. That you would help us to see clearly how your love outshines, outlasts, outloves anything this world could offer. Begin that process within us of removing idols, we pray. And then give us grace as we move forward from this place to do what we must do through the power of your Holy Spirit to pull them out and to walk faithfully with you. We offer our prayer in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.